I'm going to invite someone up for a reading. Elissa, I had a lot of announcements to go through, so sorry that I missed that, Elissa. How can I assist here? You want this. Can we give a round of applause for Elissa here? Just. Oh, you want over. All right, this morning... Our Frontlines team is coming around with some Bibles. If you need a Bible to take home with you forever, feel free to take the one they give you. Just raise your hand if you need one. They're coming around now. This morning, we'll be reading from Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. And it's titled, The Tower of Babel. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east... They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, They are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Elissa, for reading for us this morning. Uh, For those on our podcast, Elissa is currently walking away from the front in a set of crutches. So that is why we are thanking her. Uh, Good morning, everyone. My name is Matt. I am one of the leaders of our church family, uh, specifically our pastor of teaching and vision. And it is my joy uh, to kick us off this week in a new series called Focus. Now, before I do that, I just wanted to mention um, a bit of an announcement, some exciting things happening this week. Uh, Some of you will be familiar, some of you will not be, but this past year, Church of the City was adopted into a family of churches known as SOMA. SOMA was a family of churches that was founded in the Pacific Northwest in the area of Seattle when a guy by the name of Jeff Vanderstelt uh, felt God calling him to plant a church uh, that would focus around uh, the identities of being a family, of being missionaries, and of being disciples. And if you're familiar with the language here at Church of the City, that's who we consider ourselves to be and primarily organizing ourselves in missional communities. Uh, This week is the SOMA family retreat. And so every year SOMA organizes a retreat and they invite staff and elders from Soma churches to travel uh, to the retreat. And this year, I think in most years actually, it's hosted in California. Um, and so myself and Andrea, Spencer and Sam, and then one of our elders, Matt Klein-Geltink, and his wife Sarah are going to be in uh, San Diego this week suffering for the Lord in the warm weather. Um, but really, the, the value of this is being with others of like-minded churches to be able to encourage one another, support each other. And the theme of the week is presence. And so I would just ask you to be praying for those of us that are going, that we would be encouraged, that we would come back uh, feeling fed. Um, and also, uh, we were asked to be considering the fact 
fact that there will be spiritual warfare that oftentimes happen when you're doing trips like this. And so be praying for our protection uh, as we go and are able to spend some time with our larger family, the Soma family. Some of you will also be familiar. uh, There was a pastor within the Soma family of one of the Soma churches that took his own life uh, back at the end of November. And so I'm sure that will change a bit of the dynamic of the retreat this year. So if you could just be praying for the Soma family um, and our time together this week, that would be really meaningful and valuable for us. Well, before we jump in, as I said, we're starting a new series called Focus, a three-week series on the good, the bad, and the ugly as it relates to technology. Why don't we take a moment to pause, uh, consider how we're doing emotionally before we keep going. So Jesus, we thank you that you are with us, and I thank you that you are present and that your spirit fills us. And I pray this morning as we begin talking about technology and as we begin thinking about its place in our life, God, that you would uh, be working in our hearts, that you would be convicting us, and that you would lead us forward, we pray. Uh, In the time in which we live, the days in which we live, I pray that we would be a present people and that our tech wouldn't take us away from others. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, I want to start with a question. Can any of you tell me, um, and knowing that technology is the theme of this message, can any of you tell me what happened on June 29th, 2007? Uh, Maybe some of us will be familiar, some of us will not be. June 29th, 2007. Now, yes, it was my birthday of that particular year, uh, but that is not what was the big thing that happened in that particular year, as much as it was probably a big deal for me. I think I actually turned 19, which was, uh, I guess, exciting in a Canadian context for a particular reason. But um, yes, Mr. Tetro, you are right. He held up his iPhone. That was the release of the original iPhone. Some of us maybe are or are not familiar with that. Here's a picture of Steve Jobs um, holding up uh, that day where he said, hey, we're going to be introducing a smartphone to the world. Now, 2007 was a big deal. Some of us might not realize it, but it was also the year that Facebook allowed anyone to join with an email address. Uh, some of us are like, what? That, that, that was a thing? Yeah, prior, you had to be a college or university student to actually be allowed on Facebook. But at that point, it said, hey, anybody with an email address can now be a user of Facebook. Uh, it's the year that Twitter became its own platform. It was year one of the cloud, and it was also the first year of the app store. Store. Likely at that time, uh, Apple probably hoped for it, but they could maybe have never imagined that 13 years later this would be the reality of the App Store. Here on the screen, Apple customers spent a record 1.42 billion between Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve. Then the App Store brought in a single day sales record of 386 million on New Year's Day alone, according to Apple. Uh, 2007 will go down as the beginning of the digital age, and it's had enormous economic realities. Um, here's, here's seven years ago, four of the top five global companies were industrial. Today, all five are tech. Apple, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, and Facebook. 2007, the beginning of the digital age. Now, the question I want to hopefully help us answer today is, are we, as a culture, 
better for it. Uh, some of us might be able to say an immediate no. I hope over the next few weeks we can provide some nuance. Today we're going to be looking at more of the negative realities to technology. Next week we're going to look at the opportunities of technology. And then the final week we'll look at boundaries of technology. So the first question, are we better for it? Uh, Gene Twenge uh, wrote an article for The Atlantic called Have, we Lo- Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? Uh, there was also a book written uh, called iGen. Here's what the article writes. She writes in the article. The arrival of the smartphone has radically changed every aspect of teenagers' lives, from the nature of their social interactions to their mental health. These changes have affected young people in every corner of the nation and in every type of household. The trends appear amongst teens poor and rich, of every ethnic background, in cities, suburbs, and small towns. Where there are cell towers, there are teens living their lives on their smartphone. Psychologically, they are more vulnerable than millennials were. Rates of teen depression and suicide have skyrocketed since 2011. It's not an exaggeration to describe iGen as being on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades. Much of this deterioration can be traced to their phones. Now, Gen Z or the iGen are anyone born from 1995 to 2012. So if you have been born between 1995 and 2012, would you please raise your hand? You are this generation. Twenge's article reveals that iGen, the iGen generation, compared to past generations are, one, they're not hanging out with their friends as much as past generations, they're in no rush to drive, they're not dating as much, they're not having as much sex, they're more likely to feel lonely, and they're less likely to get enough sleep. David Kinneman and Mark Matlock in their book, Faith for Exiles, Five Ways for a New Generation to Follow Jesus in Digital Babylon, highly recommend the book, write this. The number of kids who struggle with thoughts of suicide or who attempt to kill themselves is rising. New research finds children's ages 5 to 17 visited children's hospitals for suicidal thoughts or attempts about as twice as often in 2015 as in 2008. Life is more complex in digital Babylon. It's not just unlimited access to content. It's the range of ideas and the fact that so many are untethered to orthodox ways of perceiving the world. There's more to think about, more to worry about, more to concern yourself with, and that's not just on your Facebook feed on Tuesday morning. Previously unimaginable complexity is creating an epidemic of anxiety in our homes and heads that ratcheted up in the hearts of the next generation. Now, this does not leave the rest of us off the hook. We are all being sucked in. Couple statistics. The average iPhone user touches his or her phone 2,617 times a day. Each user is on his or her phone for two and a half hours over the period of 76 sessions. Millennials are twice that. Just being, apparently, in the same room as your phone, even when they are turned off, will reduce someone's working memory and their problem-solving skills. Our attention span is dropping with each passing year. In 2000, before the digital revolution, it was 12 seconds, and now it's 8 seconds. A goldfish's is 9 seconds. The average person is on Facebook 50 minutes a day, 60 hours a month on social media. 
The average Netflix user watches 50 hours a month per user. Some of us have maybe come across some images that try to reveal to us. They're chilling. I want to show you some of these images. This, people going to the beach, obviously the tan that has been created, couple uh, on the wedding cake. This one is extremely chilling. Uh, it's difficult to see, but it's apparent. There's a phone between them and their child. The way that they're parenting is affecting the way, is affected by their phone. Kid in the middle of a playground wanting to play soccer. Nobody's interested. They're all on their phones. This uh, animated picture. Next one. In your mind, fetch my emails, navigate to John's house, show me the news, send this photo to Lynn. Yeah, 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 yes, master. In reality, charge me, give me some Wi-Fi. Now, new email, read, answer this call, a restaurant, check in. Yeah, yeah, yes, master. Who is the real master? Now, by looking and thinking about some of the stats that I've said, as well as some of the pictures, a great argument can be made that many of us are actually addicted to our cell phones. Now, you might say, well, hold on, hold on. Here's what an addiction is. Addiction is any repeated behavior a person feels compelled to repeat. The relentless pull to a substance or an activity that becomes so compulsive, it ultimately interferes with everyday life. Now, I don't know about you, but that's my phone for me. How many of you have ever pulled out your phone or on it, and suddenly you're like, why am I on this? Hey, show of hands. Addiction. Believe it or not, this was actually the intent. This from Sean Parker, the first president of Facebook, in a 2017 interview he did with Axios. He, wrote, he says this, The thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? And that means that we need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while because someone liked or commented on a photo or a post or whatever, and that's going to get you to contribute more content, and that's going to get you more likes and comments, it's a social validation feedback loop, exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself would come up with because you're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. Sean Parker is actually a conscientious objector with social media himself. There's a guy by the name of Ramsey Brown who run, runs something called Dopamine Labs, which helps make apps more addictive. Facebook has design ethicists on staff to help determine how to direct people's thinking. There's an institute at Stanford called the Persuasive Technologies Lab, and its mission statement is this. The purpose of the Persuasive Technology Lab is to create insight into how computing products can be designed to change people's beliefs and behaviors. Here's the great irony. There's a private school in the, the Bay Area uh, and people are playing an arm and a leg to send their kids to it. 75% of the children's parents are tech executives, and it's a completely electronic-free school. Further impacts of addictive technology use. Some of these for my friend Jared Brock. How about the physical realities? Our posture. 
By looking down at your phone constantly, your posture is being affected. It is that of an eight-year-old sitting on your neck. There are people going to the chiropractor now to have their necks treated because of the amount of times that they're on their phone. How about our eyesight? Nearsightedness has doubled in a generation. Sleep. Blue light from screens are influencing our circadian rhythms. How about our mental? We've already touched on some of these things. We have a shortened attention span. It takes 20 minutes to get into creative headspace, and we are distracted every 11 minutes. We are losing boredom, and boredom actually produces creativity. You think of standing in the line at the grocery store. What do you do now? Pull out your phone. How about relationally? There are people that now have a fear of talking on the phone. It's now strange when someone calls you. It's like, why are you calling me? (laughs) Just text me. All media connection is actually inhibiting our ability to truly connect. How about the emotional realities? We've touched on some of this. There's an increase of depression, increased stress, lower moods, higher anxiety. The UK actually appointed a minister of loneliness last year. Increased anger, frustration, and outrage, and now we see it in a more viral way. How about the comparison game? Half of females aged 18 to 34 years old say social media makes them feel unattractive. How about the spiritual realities? Many of us could say that likely Google is the new God. Google is where we go to ask our questions. Google is where we go for wisdom. Google is where we go for discernment. How about just the simple reality of the amount of time that is being wasted? And I believe it's also leading to an inability to connect with God. We can't actually get away and concentrate. This from John Mark Comer's new book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Don't read that book if you don't want to be challenged. He says this, So many people live without a sense of God's presence through the day. We talk about his absence as if it's this great question of theodicy. And I get that. I've been through the dark night of the soul. But could it be that with a few said exceptions, we're the ones who are absent, not God? We sit around sucked into our phones or TV or to-do lists, to-do lists, oblivious to the God who is around us, with us, in us, even more desirous than we are for relationship. What you give your attention to is the person that you become. You know, you've maybe heard of the verse in the scriptures that says, pray without ceasing. I've always wondered, how in the world would you do that? Maybe you've asked that question before. How would you do that? I began thinking about this as I've been reflecting on these messages, is that if I'm touching my phone 2,600 times a day, there is something going on within my subconscious, and my body has been quite literal, my mind has been trained to be thinking about doing that repeatedly. Imagine if that is what pray without ceasing is, a constant subconscious reality of I need to talk to my creator, I want to talk to God. Now, we're going to stop with the statistics there, Some of us are overwhelmed. But all of this said, what do we do? What's the main problem? And how do we actually follow Jesus in the digital age or digital Babylon? Enter Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9. And some of you are like, Tower of Babel, where are we going? If you have your Bibles, go with me. Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9. Now, a bit of a backdrop 
A backdrop on Genesis 11, if you're in your Bible, it's page 8 of the ESV. Um, We're not very far into the Bible at this point, right? But there's a backdrop, and the backdrop is Genesis 1. And in Genesis 1, God creates humanity and then commissions them with a divine purpose for their lives. And so I want to go and see this backdrop before we keep going. Here's the backdrop to Genesis 11, humanity's purpose, the divine purpose that God has given us on this planet. Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. This is what we read. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, this is key, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, here we have what theologians call our cultural mandate. It's what God has created humanity to do. It's our cre- his created intent and his created purpose, the thing by which God has assigned us to do. And this is also affirmed again if you go forward to Genesis 9, where God makes his covenant with Noah, that we're to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So let's ask a few questions. Who is God that we see here in Genesis 1? Well, God is the creator What does God the creator do? He creates human beings in his image after his likeness. So what does that mean? Who are we then? Well, we are created beings made in the image of God. This is significant. And then what are we to do as as God's created beings made in his image? We as human beings are to create We're to fill and scatter across the earth. We're to multiply. We're supposed to partner with God, extending his image, his rule, and his reign on earth. We're to be innovative, and we're to make technology. I mean, this is part of our created design and purpose, to harness the raw materials of the planet and make things that are beautiful. Partner with him in taking the world forward, extending his rule and his reign. Well, what is technology then? This from Tim Challey's book, The Next Story, Life and Faith After the Digital Explosion. He writes, Technology is the creative of activity of using tools to shape God's creation for practical purposes. God made us creative beings in his image and assigned to us a task that would require us to plumb the depths of that creativity. He knew that to fulfill our created purpose, we would need to be innovative, developing new tools and means of utilizing resources and abilities that he had given to us. In other words, obedience to God requires that we create technology. Once again, this is our created design, intent, and purpose that we are to fill the earth, subdue, partner with God, and create because we are created beings made by a creator, made in his image. Therefore, we should want to create things. Let's jump forward, however, to Genesis 11. This is now after Genesis 3, the fall in which humanity rebels against pursuing God's rule and reign over the cosmos. And they say, we want to pursue our own rule and reign. Verse 1, now the whole earth had one language and same words. It's essentially a context statement. One language and the same words. 
Verse 2, And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. Now, if we do a little bit of a review, this is a good start. They're migrating east. What was the original design and intent? Multiply, fill the earth. They're moving. They need to scatter, right? They need to go. So they're migrating east. But what happens? They seem to stop. Why? Well, they find a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settle there. Now, if you're going to build something, you need some uh, area that's flat, And this area is flat. This is Babylon, modern-day Iraq, and this was a rich and fertile place. It's rich and it's comfortable. They settled there, and we anticipate that they likely settled there to do something. And what we find in the next verse is exactly that. Verse 3, And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Let's start with the first thing that they say. Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. What's another word for make? Create. Okay. So what do we see? How are things going so far? Well, what we have is human ingenuity and creativity. The brick is a technology that they have made. They've harnessed raw materials of the planet from bitumen to make mortar. They're making technology. They're making a good thing. This is everything's going well so far. As created beings, humans are created new. They've created new and useful things. And so far, technology is actually not a problem, right? They make bricks. Everything seems to be going fine. What comes next? Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops to the heavens. Now, once again, things still seem okay. I mean, they could be building this tower. We don't know yet, but they could be building this tower for God's glory and fame, for his rule and his reign. Like, come and look. See what we have built. It's for God's glory and God's fame, right? They're using their technology. This could be made for a good purpose. They could be using the brick for good things. But then what do we see? Second part of verse four. We get their intent of this tower and as a result, the brick. And let us make a name for ourselves, let we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And here lies their motivation, or what we could say as their idols. Now you might say, well, what is an idol? Keller defines an idol, which I think is one of the most helpful definitions, as anything more important to you than God. So what's the first idol of the heart of these folks at what we will find, come to see as Babel. Number one, let us make a name for ourselves, i.e. the idol of power. Therefore, what we see here in the story of Babel is that while the brick was a helpful technology that could have been used to shape God's creation and point to him, the propensity of the human heart was to make a name for themselves And this story has now become about human independence and self-sufficiency apart from God. Power manifests itself in control, in desiring position, in desiring influence, in desiring success, or in exerting strength. And maybe now at this point you start thinking about the way in which we use our cell phones or the way in which we can use technology. And internally, if we're desiring influence, control, status, technology can certainly be used for that purpose. But it's not our phones that's the immediate problem. It's the intention and what's going on inside of our hearts that's the problem, our desire for power. 
What about secondly, the second idol of the heart of these folks? Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Here are the idols of security and control. They want to stay in one place. They want security and they want comfort. What did God commission them to do? Fill the earth. Scatter. And what do they say? Nope. We want to stay. We want to settle. We want to make a name for ourselves. But we don't want to be dispersed. We want to stay here. No, God. We don't want to extend your rule and reign. We want to stay. We'd rather security. And we search for security and family and finances and protection and safety and in our futures. Or we look for comfort and pleasure and freedom and excesses and home and vehicles and recreation and certainly on our phones. How many of us struggle in using our phone for comfort, of binge watching something, of escaping? That doesn't mean that if you need a time to rest, you watch an hour show or a two hour movie periodically. But when a 45-minute episode becomes five episodes later, and all night long, that's all you've been doing, you must ask the question, why did I come to this in the first place? What am I looking to this to provide for me that I'm not looking to God to provide? Peace, security, satisfaction. Well, what does this all mean if we look at this story and helping us discern technology? Here's what this means. Technology alone is not the issue. Technology simply heightens and exposes issues of our heart. Technology alone is not the issue. Technology simply heightens and exposes issues of our heart. This again from Tim Challey's book, The Next Story. While technology can be an idol in and of itself, far more commonly it serves as an enabler of other idols. In this sense, technology has a secondary function, enhancing the power of an existing idol by strengthening its grip on your heart. Technology becomes a tool for our existing idols. Some examples. He goes on to write this. The man who makes sex into an idol, who is consumed by lust, and who has no greater loyalty than following his sexual impulses, will use technology to enable and enhance his idolatry. His computer can certainly be used for many good and godly purposes, but instead it becomes a tool in the service of the idol that controls him, furthering his bondage, increasing the power of that idol through the viewing of pornography that fuels his lustful desire. Or how about the idol of comfort and security will lead someone to use technology for the purpose of avoiding people, numbing themselves through binge-watching television shows rather than connecting with others. Or how about the idol of approval that will lead someone to find validation through social media? This happens all far too commonly. Now at this point, we got to ask the question then, well, what, what's the solution? Because many of us are sitting here and we're realizing, like, that's me. And many of us are trying to point our fingers at technology, but we have to go below the surface of the technology. And that's what I'm pressing on here of why in the first place, what motivates going back to it. And as followers of Jesus, we believe the solution is this, is that we actually need a new heart, which is something that Jesus, our rescuer and example, promises to those who trust him. This in Ezekiel 36, verse 26, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit will I put within you. 
and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. We need a full change of our hearts, our hearts that we're born with that are, that are hard, that are hard to God, that are hard to the softening of him and his spirit. We need those hearts to be renovated. We need them to be changed. We need them to be replaced. And Jesus came and lived the life that we could not live to give us a new heart. In 2009, I was thinking of the heart and def defined by Dallas Willard as the heart is the executive center of a person. We need to have a new executive center because our executive center is prone to go to ourselves. You know that song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We need our hearts repeatedly renovated and surrendered to Christ. How about this verse from Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, and think about this as it relates to our lives and our use of technology. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. What does it say? Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What are the things that help you run with Jesus? If there are things in your life that are preventing you from running the race with Jesus, put it aside. Get rid of it. But are there things that will help you run with Jesus? And that's what we're going to look at next week. That there's also an opportunity with technology. That there's some redemptive realities of tech that actually help us run the race with Jesus. You know, briefly, one of those things I think is the YouVersion Bible app. Uh, I have friends um, in, our, in my new DNA that we are reading the Bible in a year together, and you can do that with people, and you can see them at the end of the readings for the day. There's a little section called Talk It Over, and we can hold each other accountable to doing that, those Bible readings. Like, that's, that's a very beautiful thing that technology allows us to do. But are there aspects of our technology that prevent us from running the race with Jesus? Absolutely. It goes on. Run the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice what it says, right? Lay aside every weight and sing which clings. Run the race with endurance. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And what does Jesus do if we're to look to him? Well, Jesus empties himself and is raised on a wooden cross. Not for his own glory or benefit. If you think of the Babel story, what are they doing? Let's build a, a, a tower with its tops to the heavens so people will look to us. And Jesus is raised on a cross, not for his own glory, but for you and for me. Not to make a name for himself, but for us so that we might run the race and also live forever with him. To run the race and live forever with him. Well, how does the story end in Babel? Verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. 
This interesting language in Genesis, right? If God is everywhere at once, how did he suddenly come down? It's like in the Garden of Eden where God is walking and can't find Adam and Eve. You're kind of like, but you're God, you're ever-present, all, what does this mean? Again, human language trying to put two words here, helping us trying to understand this relationship of God and, and humanity. And the Lord said, behold... They are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only be the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. You know, it's interesting as we think about here, what, what God is saying about technology used in this way, what will it allow people to do and to believe? We don't need God. Right? And that's, that's one of the realities of over-technology use. So the way that we can use it is like, I don't need God anymore. The same thing has happened now. So what does God do? Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they might not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. What's God's response? They have to get back to the cultural mandate that I gave them. They have to go scatter. They have to fill the earth. They need to extend my rule and reign across the earth. Revelation 21 tells us that when Jesus returns, that the city will be the reality. So it's not anti-city, but it's anti-city in which God is not exalted, in which God is not the center. And God said, unless that's the reality, they must be dispersed. Now, how do we respond as followers of Jesus, at least for today? Because there's been a lot here, I recognize that. But how do we respond today? Well, number one, I think we should do a technology audit. And what I mean by that is look at the symptoms. You know, as I mentioned the addiction, or the uh, definition of addiction, you know, that might have been a reality for you going, oh my goodness, it is an ongoing impulse in my life. So first look at the symptoms. You know, when you go to the doctor and you're not feeling well, they're asking you about the symptoms. What's going on? It's like, well, I can't stop touching my phone. I, I, every night I'm, I'm watching Netflix and I can't stop. And that's what, it, that's what it is. Okay, why are you doing that? Which then brings us to the second thing, which you've got to identify the root issues, repent of them, and trust Christ. As I said, tech itself is not the issue. It heightens a deeper lying, underlying heart issue. You know, so if you ask that question, okay, every evening I am spending exorbitant amounts of time watching Netflix. Ask the question, why? Is there something that I'm avoiding doing? Is this bringing a level of numbing to myself because I'm struggling in areas of my mental and emotional well-being? So I need to do this in order to be alive. Do you need to watch a television show to go to sleep at night? That's something that I struggle with. It's like this is going to help me sleep at night because then I won't be thinking about other things. This will help put me to sleep. And then you got to ask the question, is that healthy? Well, suddenly that's become some form of a medicated reality. And then thirdly, and we're going to touch on this in three weeks, got to talk about boundaries. If we're addicted, then we have to talk about boundaries. If we're prone to continue to go back to it, then we have to talk about boundaries. And that's what we'll be exploring in week three. 
Now this morning, it's been a little bit, um, but we're going to be taking communion. And I can really think of no better response to this morning than going to the table to remember Christ, to look at what he did for us in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, defeating the power of sin, defeating the power of the weight that holds us down. That's what his resurrection means. And so some of us need to believe the power of the gospel, that Jesus wants to go after our idols, that Jesus wants to go after the things that are holding us back. And this morning, it might simply mean as we're beginning this discussion of technology and idols of like, okay, I've got something. I don't know what it is. I don't know what the root is, Jesus, but I just lay it before you. Search my heart. You know, I love those lines from David in the Psalms where he says, God, search my heart. What he's saying is, I can't search it perfectly. Only you can get beneath the surface. My heart is sick. I am, I am filled with deceit even about myself and my heart. I need you to search me, to expose to me who I am, so that then I know where to invite you. And so maybe this morning as we're taking communion, that's the prayer Jesus, begin to expose my heart. I want to surrender this technology stuff to you. I want to surrender my, my phone to you. I want to surrender my habits to you in this area. Like imagine, imagine, okay? And this, this, pray that this would be the case, you know, over the next year and coming years, that, that we as the family of Church of the City would be a group of believers and Christians that just use our technology differently. And that people look to us and they're like, wow, you have some pretty distinct boundaries. One I'm going to suggest is one hour a day, one day a week, one week a year. So one hour a day, no phone. Meaning that it gets up after you and it goes to bed before you. You go buy an analog digital clock. I did that. My phone stays in my kitchen. It doesn't sit at my bedside. And I get up with a little beep, 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 and it progressively gets louder. Analog clock. One day a week. Don't touch your phone at all. Sabbath. One week a year. Nothing. It's gone. You know, people now are going, um, you can actually look at this on the internet. You, I know you can get lost on the internet, and that's also a problem. But you can look into what people are now doing in Silicon Valley around, like, straight up, like, tech detoxes. And it's wild. But let us here as followers of Jesus, let's really lean in today and over the coming weeks to say, what, what are the motivations of my heart? What are the idols of my heart that keep pulling me back? So I'll be honest, as I begin researching about this, I had a good few days. And then I was like, because they're habits. I need to continue to lay myself at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, change me. Change my heart. Sanctify me. Make me more like your son. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to take communion today. If you have not committed your life to following Christ, we'd ask you to allow communion to pass before you. We'll have other opportunities to take communion. Let's respond now in song and in communion. And following communion, once we've taken the elements, hold on to them. Hold on to the elements. We're going to take them all together. Following that time, we'll have an opportunity for you to come forward and ask for prayer from our prayer team, and we would invite you to do that.